trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where if you are wrong, think, curious, you can safely gather with like-minded people and test the waters. Let's see how far your commitment to truth goes. Now, that's not a suggestion that I have all the truth and I'm going to be the one carefully feeding it to you like a like a baby bird being fed by its mother. No, no, but I am going to encourage you to think as clearly and as independently as possible about the world around us. Seems more important today than it has uh, in, in previous times. I don't know if you get a sense that the stakes have been raised, but sure feels that way, at least, you know, to, to me. And uh, I'm I'm far less concerned with, well, you know what we got to do? We got to win this fight. We got to win this argument. We got to beat them, you know, conquer them, do- dominate them. If I can be really blunt, what I'm trying to accomplish here with getting behind this microphone each day and sharing the information that I share and the encouragement that I share is I'm trying to bring people together on issues and ideas that matter. And when I say bring them together, I mean bring just enough of an understanding or enough of a willingness to look at things critically and clearly to where there, there may be some things we finally recognize, you know what, we have so much more in common on this issue, I'm willing to set my differences aside and to pull together with people. I know I'm not an advocate of collectivism, but collectivism is, is pulling people together by force. What I'm talking about is something where people voluntarily come together on issues that matter, to where they can speak with one voice on the things that actually have lasting value. And unfortunately, there's a lot of the stuff that we obsess over, myself included, that, you know, I obsess over things that have no real lasting value. It's called getting caught up in the great ephemera machine, as Paul Rosenberg would put it. Well, let's dive in. Let's see where we're going today. We've got quite a little journey ahead of us. Our program is made possible by HSLAmmo.com. Also, MonticelloCollege.org lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. So I guess most of us are becoming pretty painfully aware right now that uh, every dollar we have seems to buy less and less each month. At least it, it feels like every month <clears throat> I'm starting to recognize, you know, the, the increasing costs in just about everything across the board. That's thanks to inflation. Now, Jordan Schachtel comes right out and says what needs to be said. And that is, if you want to fix the economy, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to separate money from the state. And I realize not everybody's really fluent on this topic, but I think he offers a terrific explanation. And and his bottom line premise here is the Federal Reserve and politicians shouldn't have control over the economy. Jordan Schachtel says the average 21st century American politician doesn't care about you and your family or even the district that he or she represents. As COVID mania made crystal clear, their main concern is making sure they have the power to rule over you. Now, rarely do they wield this power to the benefit of constituents who elected them through traditional democratic process. Now, of course, there are exceptions, 
but these noble politicians are a tiny minority on the federal level. So in order to achieve electoral success, politicians get in the good graces of elite, well-funded networks via Washington, Wall Street, and elsewhere. And as long as they accommodate to the interests of this 0.01% fractional group, power incumbency remains an indefinite prospect. Jordan Schachtel writes, over the past few years, the politicians in charge have authorized the printing of trillions and trillions of dollars in the name of a global pandemic. And he says, in doing so, they debased the currency and set off an inflation time bomb, making the vast majority of Americans significantly poorer and worse off. So while the average American is now combating the horrors of government and Federal Reserve-induced stagflation, the politicians' patrons are wealthier than ever. The major beneficiaries of this decade's money-printing adventures have been all the people who already have all the wealth and power. Moreover, that wealth gap has only grown significantly in their favor, and that's all by design. As the Biden administration challenges the people once widely accepted, or rather the once widely accepted definition of a recession, it's clear that the people in charge are willing to deceive the public indefinitely while they continue the, while they pursue rather the continuation of these outcomes. So his bottom line is this, America's money is broken. The U.S. dollar has become nothing more than a tool to maintain the status of our ruling elite at the expense of billions of families worldwide. From a logical, objective perspective, there's no justification for the current status quo. So why does the unconstitutional Federal Reserve get to manipulate the money? Where is the accountability in the process? Jordan Schachtel writes, it's completely insane that politicians and shadowy opaque operators, or actors rather, at the Federal Reserve have control over the U.S. economy. If you're trained in even the most basic framework of free market economics, you can clearly understand the very obvious economic and ethical shortcomings of a system that's micromanaged by imperfect humans rather than the forces of a free market. With all the amazing technology and interconnectivity at our fingertips, he says it's totally bonkers to be living in 2022 and relying on a bunch of Keynesian economists to manage the prospects of your current and future prosperity. Now, thankfully, in 2009, humanity was granted a massive technological and humanitarian breakthrough with the invention of Bitcoin, a true free market money that he says he believes is destined to become the future global reserve currency. But in short term, he says, I can definitely see the coming BRICS reserve currency overtaking the dollar. This is the acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. You know that uh, they're calling for a challenge to the U.S. dollar. Well, if you didn't know that, you're, you're about to become aware of it. But Jordan Schachtel warns, even that is going to fail because it has the very same shortcomings as all the other fiat systems. He says Americans or anyone else in the world whose government is tethered to the dollar or to another junk fiat currency no longer needs to attach their hopes and dreams to the U.S. dollar. And he says we'd be unwise to maintain the delusion that the forces in charge of the dollar are looking out for we the people. So no, he says it's not patriotic to prop up our broken money. In fact, doing so will just lead to endless suffering. In 2022, the U.S. dollar has become the instrument for a monetary cartel that only serves the interests of its own circles of power and influence. In other words, it has nothing to do with Americanism. 
So if we want to fix the economy, Jordan Schachtel says we need to get politicians and unaccountable self-appointed pseudo-monetary masterminds out of the money business. I know that's going to make some people nervous, okay? There's a time it would have made me nervous too. Wow, what are you talking about? Throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know. How can we trust that the right thing is going to happen? But that's a beautiful thing. And I and I kind of lean towards, uh, I'm more towards competing currencies. I think that uh, people will go where they perceive the value is real. Now, traditionally, that's been, you know, gold, silver, other precious metals. It's tangible. It's it's fungible. You can divide it up. Uh, it's it's something that people can look at and hear. You know, when you hear a silver coin drop on the counter, the sound it makes conveys that there's something. This is not just a some weird lump of metal. There's a there's a ring to it that uh, that tells the tale that uh, this is a precious metal. I don't know how to describe it. Just drop a a true silver coin on the counter, and you'll hear the difference. Versus dropping one of the the current uh, what are they zinc coated lead slugs or or uh, you know metal slugs. Bottom line is, I believe if you let people have cons- have uh, competing currencies, we would very quickly see where the trust in the market is, and people would very quickly, you know, put their their money or put their savings into whatever form of money represented the best store of value. But as Jordan Schachtel points out, you know, in his article, it's it's never about representation on the part of politicians or, you know, the money cartel that allegedly is helping them manage the economy. All that is about keeping them in power. So unless you want to just, you know, accede to them that, well, you know, I guess you're just going to keep getting more and more power until you have absolute, indisputable, 100% control of my life and everybody else's lives, it's probably time to start looking for some alternatives. Now, of course, under legal tender laws, you know, the powers that be can do their best to make it illegal to use anything except the coin of the realm. Even so, I think there are some creative folks out there. I think Bitcoin represents one of those creative opportunities. I'm not saying it's the panacea, but it definitely is something that takes the centralization out of the equation and makes a lot of those centralizing middlemen obsolete. Yeah, I can see why they're threatened by it. This doesn't give them more leverage and more control over the average person. And to them, the powers that be, that's got to be seen as a bad thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we're back. I would like to send a shout-out to Garage Door Pros. You can actually check out their online presence at garagedoorproservices.com. There's a link in my show notes. It'll take you right to them. Bottom line is this is a local company in southwest Utah that installs services and repairs garage doors. We're talking doors made in America And whether you're talking uh, commercial service or residential service, these are the guys you should count on, especially if you have need of a garage door anywhere in the St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, or Colorado City areas. Now, you can pick up the phone and call them at 435-525-2773. You can go online to garagedoorproservices.com. Bottom line is, with Garage Door Pros, you're going to get a quick response, a much faster lead than other companies can give you, 
and the kind of attention to detail that really makes their customers happy. You should, you really should check out the link and just look at the customer reviews. There's some pretty high praise in those reviews, and I think every bit of it is well-earned. All right, moving on to a topic that uh, sadly I think is, is really kind of relevant. Doing hard things can make us into better people. I know, that's, that's not a very popular thing. I, the line for people who are willing to do hard things or anxious to do hard things, that's a pretty short line. Most of us, myself included, prefer to go where ease dictates. And well, I'm just going to, you know, flow with the water downhill here because it's easy and gravity is doing all the work. But that's never where you become a better person. And I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not so much trying to make the cases, hey, your life is too comfy and therefore you're a bad person. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm pointing out here, or at least I hope I'm pointing out, is that when hard things come to us, being the kind of person who can step up and take action and continue to move forward and continue to do those things, even though they're very difficult or, or seemingly impossible, Those are the people who shed their flaws and find that a lot of the the dross within them is refined out. You become a better version of yourself. And I'm just, I'll speak for myself. Look, I look back at my life and I look at the periods of time where I actually grew, where I became a better human being. and, And it was every single time it was tied to something that I was going through that was not easy, that was outside of the comfort zone. Now, sometimes we have, you know, control over this, right? A person who wants to really get fit, I want to train for a marathon, okay? That's hard to do. But a person who willingly gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning and goes out and runs increasing amounts of miles and trains and stretches and eats rights and, and so forth, it's hard, but they're going to see the results, and they choose to do that. Sometimes we don't have a choice as to what the difficulties are that we're going to be dealing with. So, for instance, I've got an article here from uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola. Pick this up off of LouRockwell.com over the weekend. The title is Difficult Times Ahead, How to Break Free from the System. I I just, now, I feel like I need to offer a little warning here. And that is, I'm I'm not here to bum you out. I don't want to make you feel like, oh, great, here it comes, the four horsemen of the apocalypse speech. I think we can pretty clearly see that things are not getting easier. Things are not getting better. If anything, the deterioration and the intensity of the divide and the uh, unraveling that's going on around us, it seems to be getting more and more intense. <clears throat> I don't say that with, with glee. Like, good, finally, it's, it's all going to come crumbling down. But I think we're being handed an opportunity to become better people possibly even the best version of ourselves. Not in spite of, but because of the difficulties that we're facing. And I don't know what form those, those difficulties are likely to, to take. I, I see some trends here that I think are alarming and that uh, probably point to areas where we ought to be willing to step up and fortify ourselves. That includes things like food storage. That includes things like you know, personal understanding of what your rights are, how they protect you from unreasonable government power, and so forth. But I can say with some sense of confidence 
I think most of us are going to face a decision, if we haven't already, on how we're going to break free from the system. And there may be a number of systems, actually, but look around you and just try to tally up how many different systems in your life are trying to rule you or otherwise bring you into submission. I mean, you gotta, you've got to willfully shut your eyes not to see it. So it's not just the paranoid, oh, yeah, everybody wants to rule me, everybody wants to <clears throat> take over the world or whatever. No, it's, it's just a matter of we've been raised to believe that these things are, are normal. Well, it's good and it's right that uh, someone should tell me what to do, and if I don't want to do it, they should be able to send men with guns and badges to come and hurt me and make me do it. That's normal and that's good and that's right. Come on, you know, most of us were, were raised to believe this from a fairly early age. But if at some point you reach the understanding that, hey, I'm not some animal that was made to be ridden and whipped with a crop and, you know, told go this way, go that way. Then you're going to have to make a decision about whether or not to step up and in some cases break free from the system. I have a link to this Dr. Mercola article in my show notes. He's kind of a controversial figure to some people, but I, I do see a lot of common sense in this article. And he talks about breaking free of the, uh, the medical system. Now, look, if I was suffering a heart attack, I would definitely trust the emergency care that's available in the emergency room. At the same time, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't register my concern with what the medical field is becoming in its unholy union with government and in some cases with media to try to force feed us public health solutions that seem to hurt us into an ever shrinking corner of things that we're still allowed to do or choose for ourselves. So when Dr. Mercola talks about how natural medicine is one option for people who really want to, you know, pull themselves free from the system, that's something you should look at. And, and people will tell you, well, it's unproven. It hasn't been, uh, you know, categorically proven in a laboratory and peer-reviewed and all that. Baloney. Natural medicine is viewed with suspicion or it's something that's novel or unproven, you know, says Dr. Mercola. But he says, you got to understand that uh, there was a lot of uh, folk medicine, natural medicine, things that were understood for many, many years, generations, hundreds of years, prior to John D. Rockefeller seizing control over the medical industry 112 years ago. People knew how to take care of themselves. They took it very seriously. And Dr. Mercola goes into how medicine was corrupted. He gives you the nuts and bolts about Rockefeller's plan to monopolize medicine, banking, and food. So Dr. Mercola says, look, it's time to get healthy. You want to break free from the system, particularly the, the medical system and the, the controlling state that it's, it's uh, morphing into? Then now's the time to get healthy. And he gives some very specific things that you can do. Sun exposure, cutting seed oils from your diet, time-restricted eating, also known as uh, intermittent fasting. He talks about optimizing <clears throat> your circadian rhythms, becoming a perpetual student and continuing your learning because after all, whose responsibility is it to make you well? I know there are some people who would answer that. Well, Brian, I show up to the doctor and I say, well, doc, here I am. Make me better. But it's, it's our responsibility. And I say that to you as a guy who's <clears throat> carrying around 40 extra pounds of myself that I probably shouldn't be 
but who also is feeling that need that, you know what, if really trying stuff is coming, you know, and I don't, I don't know what form it may take, but if, if uh, we're facing some difficult times, it might not be a bad idea to be a little more rugged than I currently am. So that means moving around more. It means eating more of the right things. It means taking care of your health in a preventive fashion rather than trying to catch up and have, hey, doc, fix me. Prescribe something. Give me a pill. Do some surgery. Come on. Snap, snap. Make it better. Hopefully that makes sense. I'll have a link to Dr. Mercola's article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would encourage you, please do. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click on the subscribe button at the bottom of today's show notes. And just give me your email. I'll send you a copy of my show notes with links to the various articles or links to the various individuals that I talk to in the course of a week. And it'll just give you some more resources through which you can feed your understanding of the world. also want to give a, a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. That's my friend uh, Kendall Whiting. Great resource if you are into self-reliance or emergency preparedness. They have food storage. They have emergency preparedness uh, packages and and uh, items that would really make a difference in the event of an emergency. You know, something like that were ever to happen. I want to take a look at it. Lifesavingfood.com. So I see a lot of mistakes that are being made in our society today. And I'm not saying that from the lofty position of one who's never made mistakes. I just... I had this sense, maybe I'm alone in this, that our culture is is very sick. Okay, you got what, drag queen story hour and basically the whole month of June wasn't enough to show you that we are a culture that is, is definitely spiraling out of control. If only there were some precedent that we could look at historically that could tell us what happens when societies lose their grip on reality, when they lose their moral foundations. Is there anything that we can observe that, that takes place when societies do this? Because about 100 years ago, there was a society, very uh, well-educated, first world, you know, world-class society that did exactly this. And over the course of the next 20 or so years, their society became one of the worst nightmares that the world has ever seen. Yeah, you know what I'm getting at, right? Talking about Weimar Germany. And I know people sometimes really chafe at the idea that why would you even compare what we're going through today with what the Germans went through, you know, between 1933 and 1945? Because the parallels are there. That's why. This is not to say that uh, you're turning into a Nazi and they're turning into Nazis and everywhere I look, they're all Nazis, okay? That's Antifa's ploy, even as they go out there and act like Nazis. But no, we're making some of the same mistakes because we are on a very similar trajectory in which we have abandoned any form of moral absolutes or sense of right and wrong, and it's pretty much anything goes. 
And with that, when, when, when people misplace their ability to, to determine right from wrong, it becomes a lot easier to persuade them to enslave themselves. So I'm going to include a link to the, to the article today from Joshua Stiles. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's page. It's a big article. You are looking at the better part of 45 minutes or an hour to read this article. That is a massive commitment of time. But I would like to ask you, or at least encourage you, please find the time to do it. Because if you want to understand the urgency of the kind of mistakes that our society is making right now, you should also find the time and the courage to read Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. Joshua Stiles, in his write-up, gives some very compelling reasons why this is a good book to be studying. He says, it's been more than 75 years since the Nazis were defeated and Auschwitz was liberated. That's a long time. So long, in fact, that while many still learn of the horrors of the Holocaust, far fewer understand how the murder of the Jews happened. And he asks the question, how were millions of people systematically exterminated in an advanced Western nation? Not just an advanced Western, Western nation, but a constitutional republic. How did such respectable and intelligent citizens become complicit in the murder of their countrymen? Well, these are the questions that Milton Meyer tried to answer in his book. They thought they were free. So to understand how the book came into existence, you have to understand that in 1952, Meyer moved his family to a small German town to live among 10 ordinary men, hoping to understand not only how the Nazis came to power, but how ordinary Germans, ordinary people, became unwitting participants in one of history's greatest genocides. Now, the men Meyer lived among came from all walks of life. They included people like a tailor, a cabinet maker, a bill collector, a salesman, a student, a teacher, a bank clerk, a baker, a soldier, and a police officer. But here's the cool thing. Meyer didn't just conduct formal interviews in order to study these men. He had dinner in their homes. He befriended their families. He actually lived as one of them for nearly a year. His kids went to the same school as their kids. And by the end of his time in Germany, Meyer could genuinely call these people his friends. So they thought they were free as Meyer's account of their stories. And the title of the book is his thesis. Meyer explains, only one of my 10 Nazi friends saw Nazism as we, you and I, saw it in any respect, and that was Hildebrandt, the teacher. Even then, he believed and still believes in part of its program and practice, that being the Democratic part. The other nine decent, hardworking, ordinary and, and ordinarily intelligent and honest men did not know before 1933 that Nazism was evil. They did not know between 1933 and 1945 that it was evil. And they do not know it now. None of them ever knew or now knows Nazism as we knew and know it. And they lived under it, served it, and indeed made it. That's kind of chilling, isn't it? I mean, how could that happen? How could they not know Nazism was evil? How could they see what was happening and not speak out? But the author here says, as I read Meyer's book, I could feel this knot in my stomach, a growing fear that what happened in Germany was not a result of some defect in the German people of this era. This part may chill you, but you need to hear this. He says the men and women of Germany in the 1930s and 40s were not unlike 
Americans in the 2010s and 2020s, or the people of any nation at any time throughout history. You understand what he's saying? They're human just as we are human. And as humans, we have a great tendency to harshly judge the evils of other societies, but fail to recognize our own moral failures. Failures that have been on display, uh, full display for the past couple of years during the COVID pandemic. So he says, Meyer's book is frighteningly prescient. Reading his words is like staring into our own souls. And then he shares a number of paragraphs that show just how similar the world's response to COVID has been to the German response to the threat of the Jews. And he says, if we can truly see the parallels or understand the parallels between our response to COVID and the situation in Hitler's Germany, if we can see what lies at the end of two weeks to flatten the curve, then he says, perhaps we can prevent the greatest atrocities from being fully realized in our own day. But to stop our bent toward tyranny, we first have to be willing to grapple with the darkest parts of our nature, including a tendency to dehumanize others and to treat our neighbors as enemies. And from here, he goes into overcoming decency, um, how uh, we have to see our own lives and, and how we, <clears throat> we tend to see our own lives and justify whatever's going on. He talks about uh, how we use our own troubles to dismiss, you know, things that we otherwise might call out around us. Well, you know, that's bad, but I got my troubles too, so I got to tend to this. He talks about the tactics of tyrants, the common good. And appeals to the common good. Boy, did we hear that a lot during uh, coronavirus. Endless distractions. Suppressing speech and encouraging self-censorship. The uncertainty that has been inculcated and was inculcated among the German people. He talks about how things progress gradually and then suddenly. And even those people who recognize, hey, this isn't right and are waiting for that shock that's going to try to wake everybody up and show everybody, hey, look, we're on the wrong path. It never comes. Is this not exactly like what we have seen with some of the this queer lockdown, you know, proposals and mandates that were thrown at us over the last couple of years? Strange stuff. At any rate, it's a big article. Like I say, 45 minutes minimum if you're going to sit down and read it all in one sitting. But I think you'll find this really worth your while. Joshua Stiles goes into some very in-depth analysis. The excerpts he pulls from They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 1945 by Milton Meyer. This is worth the price in terms of how much time it will take you to sit down and read this. Best of all, you should sit down and read the book. But if you don't have time to do that, this will give you a very good idea of what his thesis was and where Milton Meyer was coming from. And, and if I, I've, I've lent that book out and I've, I've recommended that book to a number of people over the years. I have yet to encounter a single person who's actually read the book that didn't come back to me and go, holy crap, that book sounds like it's describing us in our time. No, we're not goose-stepping around. No, we're not wearing funny mustaches. But we are headed toward totalitarianism in the same way the German people were herded into or into totalitarianism. Maybe we should think about changing course. What do you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for reveling in Wrong Think with me today. I do want to mention HSLAmmo.com. High-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. It's right there available for you. You can go to their website, HSLAmmo.com. If you're lucky enough to live in St. George, you might even be able to swing by the shop and, and pick up your ammo from Spencer Worthington personally. He's a great guy. I'm happy to have him as a sponsor. And, yes, he makes a fine product, which it turns out, by the way, is also not a bad store of value, just a little something to consider. So, watching the left dial up their activism to 11, I get it. It can be frustrating. It can be maddening. Sometimes the unkindest thoughts that I think come when I see that, uh, you know, somebody is getting all dialed up and screeching and screaming and demanding more power, more control, more of your money. It's a, it's a pretty tough thing. And and I, I admit I limit my media coverage in part because I just don't like to be force-fed, that kind of stuff. But I do agree that there is a good way to push back if you are so inclined to push back. D. Parker, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says, why don't we just destroy the left with laughter? Now, this is pretty funny stuff. D. Parker says, when Tucker Carlson had a, another great bit on renaming monkeypox as schlong COVID with a Democratic election with no cheating, that, because that only happens when leftists lose, D. Parker says that was another great lesson on why we all need to be happy warriors against the liberty-denying left. So renaming monkeypox as schlong COVID was funny on multiple levels in and of itself, but some of the other choices were equal, equally insightful. It combined an uproariously funny takedown of the pandemic panic with a double entendre that didn't disappoint in sending the fascist far left into their usual spasms of humorless offense. Tucker even mentioned ballot harvesting. And that just won't do because we all know that those people always conduct themselves with the utmost integrity. Except when they're caught cheating. And then it's all a conspiracy theory, don't you know? So, D. Parker says all of this is a good reminder that one of the best ways for fighting against the enemies of liberty on the left is with humor. And being a happy warrior for the pro-freedom right. So this will be our rundown on the five reasons why. That's an excellent idea all around. Number one, coping skills. Let's face it, a lot of the time these days, the antis have screwed things up so much, you either have to laugh or cry. Well, there's a reason we've been given the ability to see the sheer absurdity of the left's socialist national agenda. So most of the time, getting upset gets you nowhere. That is good advice. Number two, laughter always overcomes fear. Anti-liberty leftists have an agenda based on fear. In fact, they even openly admitted it in this Newsweek opinion piece. For Democrats, fear is the path to victory in November. They just keep on trying to scare everyone into giving them more control over their lives with new crises that crop up every week. First it was global cooling, then it was global warming, then climate change to cover all the bases, then the COVID crisis, then the gang violence crisis, now it's the schlong COVID, midterm variant, or monkeypox crisis. Are people going to be fearful of something that they recognize as ridiculous? Are you going to be scared while you're laughing at something that the left is lying about? Yes, we realize that's all the time, but D. Parker says, work with me here. The problem for the liberticidal left is that if people are laughing at them, no one's going to be afraid and cowed into giving up their sensible civil rights. And they just can't have that. No, sir. Now, also number three, he says, laughter is the best way to reach moderates in the middle. 
Humor has a way of reaching people better than other forms of discourse. That's why the authoritarian left cannot abide Tucker Carlson or the Babylon Bee. Because they poke gigantic holes in those grandiose feelings that they're saving the planet or whatever, and it drives them up a wall. Number four, he says anti-left, anti-liberty leftists can't stand humor or laughter. We've all heard the aphorism, don't get mad, get even, which means we don't go the usual route of acting like a five-year-old having a temper tantrum. We smile serenely and present the facts. Well, nothing ticks off tyrants more than your refusal to cower before their woke mob and their cancel culture. And finally, number five, it's just plain fun. You probably have the, this is probably the best reason to uh, approach these contentious issues as a happy warrior. You have to think that the, that pro-freedom patriot personalities are at least having a good time and destroying an ideology that can't be the least bit honest about its true nature. They certainly look like they're having fun. This has to be partially out of the knowledge that the anti-liberty left won't be able to act in kind in response. D. Parker says, those of us in the trenches... As it were, we should have a similar attitude. As we explained, nothing ticks off tyrants more than not taking them seriously and continuously pointing out their contradictions and contradictory beliefs. They think they can do whatever they want because they're doing good. So it's more than enjoyable to point out the fact that it destroys their worldview is just icing on the cake. I get it. That's a little bit militant language. I've got to destroy that ideology, crush it, you know. But there is something to be said for If you can laugh at a person, if you can laugh at uh, that person trying to provoke you, they have no power over you. Use this sparingly. It's going to make some people absolutely flip out. They They will chimp out on you when you refuse to acknowledge their moral superiority or the guilt or whatever it is they're trying to use to control you. Besides, it feels good to laugh. Just like any problem that we can't laugh at, you know, or any problem that we can laugh at is a problem that's still small enough that we can handle it. All right, I want to end on a positive note here with uh, Barry Brownstein. Great article here about the first week of August. I was actually just having this conversation with my daughter yesterday. The, the reality has set in. The fair is coming next week. She's going to show her steer. He's going to be sold. And then it's back to school in two weeks. Oh, man, she's just like, how did it get here so quickly? How did August come so fast? And I got to tell you, I'm more excited than not, even though this year is whistling by in a big fat hurry. I'm, I'm encouraged. Here it is, August. And some really amazing things going on. I mean, you want to talk about, if you're, a, if you're a sky watcher, you'd like to get out and do some stargazing. Let's see, we've got uh, the Sturgeon Moon coming up on the 11th. That's going to be the biggest and last huge uh, moon, super moon of the year. Uh, what else? The Perseid meteor shower, one of the biggest ones of the year. Uh, Saturn is going to be especially visible. Something to think about there. Seems like there was a couple other things. I'll have to see if I can find an article on it. Anyway, I want to get back to Barry Brownstein's article, the first week in August. He uses a few quotes from Tuck Everlasting. And it's a, it's a great book if you haven't read it. I'll just give you the quick thumbnail sketch. Tuck Everlasting tells the story of the Tuck family who, after drinking from a magical spring, stop aging. That's it. They, they can't die. The Tucks seem to be living the transhumanist dream, says Barry Brownstein, but perpetual living has taught them otherwise. 
and he walks you through a conversation that the that a member of the Tuck family is having with a young girl who learns the secret of the spring and is trying to decide, should I go ahead and drink of this spring or not? And I'm going to just kind of summarize here because I really want you to read the essay in its entirety. It's It's really good. But essentially, one of the characters who has immortality, who cannot die, likens himself and his likewise immortal family members to rocks in the highway. They can't really be a part of life because really there's, there's no challenge in the sense that their life is indefinite. They, they can't die. So it's very hard to feel a part of life. Does that sound weird? Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Dying is a part of life? Here's, here's the point. In fact, let me just skip ahead here to the end. This, this is the thing that really gets me. It's the idea that you need to use the time that you have with wisdom. You don't want to just be rocks beside the road. Living is to make meaning by focusing on what truly matters. That's how Barry Brownstein puts it. And if you think your life is going to last, you know, indefinitely, would you ever take a chance? Would you ever do something? Would you be seized by the need to do something before you run out of time? No. You see his point? And this is just to, to drive it home so, so nobody misses out here. I was sharing some of the excerpts from this article with my daughter yesterday because I was telling her this is the time, even though it's the first week of August, and yes, summer's going fast. You know, you're going to be back in the grind of school here soon. This is the time to focus on fully enjoying the little slice of experiences that we actually do have time for. Now, that means we're going to have to prioritize, right? I don't know about you, but uh, I think it's kind of fun to, to get out there and make those memories. More and more, I'm, beca- I'm coming to understand that it's the memories that matter more so much than the possessions. Possessions are fun. Sometimes they fill, you know, voids in our life. But memories made with family, I don't know. There's something very powerful about that. There's something that can be enjoyed for generations. They can be enjoyed even after you're gone. So I'm not suggesting, you know, this is a wholesale change of mind. you got to totally flip your worldview on its head. I'm just saying take a little step to the side. Look at it from a slightly different vantage point and... Start making those moments matter. This is The Brian Hyde Show.